Amen. So if you take a quick glance at Acts 20 in just about any Bible you can find, you're going to see uh, headings, right? We have these headings in our Bibles. And most Bibles are going to have Acts 20 divided into three sections. There'll be three titles. So we're going to think of those as thirds. The first third is basically representative of this picture. Um, and this is, uh, do we have that picture? The, yeah, there it is. Anybody recognize what that is? That's Google Maps, right? If you've spent any time on Google Maps, I love Google Maps. I love trip planning. I love figuring all this stuff out. What that is, is a Google Map, if you were driving right now, Paul's uh, travels that we're going to cover today. So there's, you can't see it on there because the, the city names have changed, but that, that map starts in Ephesus, follows his path that he, he covers in Acts 20, and if we were driving it, it would take 74 hours. 74 hours, that's a long time. Now Paul like walked it and sailed on ships and it took months and months, right? But that's what we're covering. A better way to look at it is perhaps this map, which we've become familiar with. This is a map of Paul's third missionary journey. And this short story of what is uh, being covered today is we're, we're picking up from the end of chapter 18 in Ephesus, which is kind of hard to see, but it's sort of right there in the middle next to all of those uh, islands on the west coast of that Asian province. And he's starting in Ephesus. Remember, there was the riots in Ephesus at the end of, end of chapter 19. And then he's going to travel northwest into that area up in the upper left-hand corner called Macedonia. He's going to visit uh, in, in Macedonia a number of churches that are newly planted as part of a previous missionary journey of his. He's going to stop in and check on the people that he knows in those places. Then he's going to move into Achaia, which is modern-day Greece, and he's going to basically be a snowbird. I don't know if there are any snowbirds in the room, but he spends the winter in Corinth. And then in Corinth, his plan is to sail from Corinth, which is over there on the left, all the way over here to Jerusalem, which is on the right, but he discovers a plot against his life for like the millionth time in Paul's career, right? They're always out to try to get him. And he realizes that he can't con continue with that plan. So the best course of action at that point is to retrace his steps. He has to take the long way around, back the way he came. He ends up in a town called Troas, which is, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but it's what it looks like. And that's where the account of Eutychus takes place that Rebecca talked about this morning. From Troas, he gets on a ship and he starts sailing toward Jerusalem. However, he takes a little side route into a city right below Ephesus. It's called Miletus, and that's where we're going to start our account this morning. So the first third is sort of the roadmap that you see. We get to see where he's all going. The second third is the account of Eutychus, and the third third is where we're going to be. This is where Paul is in Miletus meeting with elders from the, the church in Ephesus. And the passage in Acts 20, starting in verse 17, starts by saying this, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them what we're going to cover in just a moment. Now, before we go into that, think about this. We can exercise a little bit of logic and realize that whatever Paul is about to say 
is in his mind extremely important. Now, it's Scripture, so it's all important. We can open up Scripture to any place and come to the conclusion that it's all important. But put yourself in Paul's mind here. He's on a ship at sea on his way to Jerusalem. He's got a crew, a captain, he's got passengers, they have a cargo, and they're on their way somewhere. There's no evidence in Scripture that Paul owned his own personal sailing vessel. So this is probably not his ship. He's hired this crew to get from point A to point B. So there's an expenditure of money, all right? And while they're out at sea, Paul, who must have some sort of authority over where this ship is bound, because we see that he makes decisions about where they're going to stop, he directs this ship to stop at Miletus. Now, that's significant in seeing how important this is because we find out in the passage that Paul is in a hurry. He wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. It's very important to him that he gets to Jerusalem by Pentecost. But even in the midst of that thought, he says, all right, we're going to take a side route. We're going to stop at Miletus. I need to talk to the elders in Ephesus. It's interesting to me and kind of funny that he didn't just go to Ephesus. Like, do you ever have things you need to get done and you know that if you're around your friends, they're going to talk for a long time, and it's going to take a long time, and it's going to kind of throw you off your plan. So he doesn't go to Ephesus. He goes to Miletus, and he sends for them. So he has to, to inconvenience someone by sending a message through this person to Ephesus, 76 miles away. They go by foot. They give the message to the elders at, at Ephesus. They have to travel back this whole time Paul, who is in a hurry, is just waiting for them so that he can deliver this message. If he is willing to go through all of that trouble in the context of being in a hurry, what he's about to say must be important. Does that make sense? And this is what he says. He goes through all of that trouble to get to this, which is going to be our text for today. If you're taking notes, this is starting in the second half of verse 18 and we're going to go through to verse 27. Paul says this to the Ephesian elders, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself." If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's what we're covering today. There's more that comes after that, but that's as far as we're going to get. 
As far as I can remember in my memory, and fair warning, my memory is not always reliable, but as best as I can remember, we have covered this passage in this church two times in the past couple of years. The first time was last July when I was ordained, and the second time was just this past January when David was ordained. That's because this passage is often associated with the training and instruction and calling of elders, and that's rightly so, because if we were to keep going after verse 27 to the end of the chapter, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders very specifically about what their call is and what their responsibilities are in leading this new church in Ephesus. And so it's rightly applied to the training of elders. However, I think verse 18 through 27, which is the section I just read, is for all of us. It is packed full with instruction of what our Christian walk, being filled with the Spirit, should and could look like. This is Paul at kind of a crossroads, all right? So from from verse 18 through 21, Paul is basically saying, look at how I've lived. Look at what my life has been like. Look at the example that I have been to you of godly living. And then from 22 through 27, he's saying, wait till you see what's going to happen next. Watch me now. And this is always funny to me, this passage and, and other places where Paul speaks about his own life, because if I'm honest, and I'm going to admit this because maybe it's helpful to some of you, I've read Paul's letters and his accounts of things he said written by other people, and Paul has always kind of, like I've had this thought in my mind where I think, if I could hang out with Paul, I might not like him very much. Like he's always talking about himself. You know what I mean? He's always talking about himself. It's kind of like annoying in a, in one, in a um, like the older sibling who's always right about everything and wants you to know it kind of way. Like, that's what I feel like sometimes when I read Paul. But that's not a right response to reading Paul, all right? Paul's words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are, they are Scripture, and, he, and it's an example for us of how to live, not to, not to be annoyed, okay? Um, Paul is inspired by the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. He's following the Holy Spirit obediently. This is a pattern in Paul's life, and we've seen it all through the book of Acts, and we see it all through his letters that he's written. It affects the way he sees the world. It affects the way he speaks. It even affects where he goes. And I want you to believe me, but let's, let's establish it biblically so you can believe the Word, not just me. In Acts 9.17, Luke writes this, So Ananias departed and entered the house. This is when Paul has been confronted on the road to Damascus by the Lord Jesus himself, and he's now waiting in a home in Damascus for further instructions. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's our first proof that Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. But there's more. In, in a few chapters later, Acts 13, 9, Paul is addressing a man named Alemus, the magician, and Paul rebukes him pretty boldly. But before he says anything, uh, Luke records that it says, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks to Alemus. And then later, we just covered this not too long ago, in 
Acts 16.6, Paul is traveling on a previous missionary journey, and he's about to enter Asia, and it says that the Holy Spirit did not allow him to enter Asia. And so he travels around, and he ends up in Macedonia. So we see this pattern in his life that, it's, that we can establish scripturally that Paul is filled with the Spirit and following the Spirit's leading. And it's the same Spirit that fills us. It's not just for Paul. I want to point you to Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. This is Paul writing to the same group that he's meeting with in Miletus right now. He's, he's meeting them. Later on, he writes them a letter. We know it as the book of Ephesians. And he says in Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I think we can all agree on that. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence reverence for Christ." Be filled with the Spirit is a command to us. It's very, very clear. Paul tells us that we need to be filled with the Spirit. We're going to talk about, in closing, when we get to the end of this this sermon, what that means and how we do that. What What does that mean for us? What do we do in response to the command, be filled with the Spirit? But first, as we get there, I want to talk about four results of being filled with the Spirit. If we are filled with the Spirit, as Paul was, what is going to be the result in our life? Could be a lot more than four, but let's look at four. Here's number one. Being filled with the Spirit results in humble service. We see this in our passage today when Paul says this, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. That phrase, serving the Lord, is astounding to me. It's one of those things that we as Christians say all the time. It's just a normal part of our vocabulary. We're serving the Lord. We're encouraging other people to serve the Lord. We think that you should serve the Lord. How are we serving the Lord? It rolls off our tongue so easily, but it is such a supernatural thing. It is not natural serving the Lord. If you say those three words and you mean it, here's what you're saying. When you say serving, you're already putting yourself in a heart posture that is in submission or deference to someone else. No matter what you're serving, you're putting yourself in submission or deference to someone else. And when you say serving the Lord, that one who you are submitting to is not just anybody, it is He is the Lord. He has authority. He has power. He has majesty. We're recognizing when we say serving the Lord, we are putting ourselves in submission to someone who is in control and we are not. That is not something that human beings do naturally on their own. We do exactly the opposite of that. 
So to say serving the Lord, it's a supernatural thing. But Paul takes it one step forward. He doesn't only say serving the Lord. He says serving the Lord with all humility. All is a big word. It's a big word. Three letters, it's a big word. It's like saying forever or every. It's all-inclusive. So for Paul to say all humility, I can't even wrap my mind around what all humility really looks like. But I think we can at least say this, that humility is bi-directional, has two directions. There's humility toward God, and there's humility toward others. Humility toward God looks like this. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Humility toward God means a recognition that I don't belong to me. Nothing that I have belongs to me. The actual meanness of me doesn't belong to me. I've been bought with a price and I am not my own. That's humility toward God. And humility toward others, man, there, you could, I could go to so many scriptures. It, the, the New Testament, the whole Bible is filled with examples of humility toward others. We're not going to put them all up on the screen, but here are just a few. Scribble these down and look them up on your own this week. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's a humility toward others that doesn't look toward your own needs and your own desires. You're trying to outdo someone else by showing more honor to them than they are to you. Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is a humility that recognizes that no single one of us, for any reason, is on a different level than anyone else. We are all equal in Christ Jesus. Humility Listen to this. I want to make sure you, I get this right and that you hear it. Humility is the laying down of our own perceived rights and needs to look to the needs of others and doing so in a way that shows no partiality for status, wealth, skin color, language, tongue, nation, go on and on. You name it. It shows no preference for any of those things. It just looks to the needs of others as we lay ourselves down. That's humility toward others. And all of that is supernatural. When we serve in all humility, we are serving the needs of, ev we're, servi we're serving the Lord, and we're looking to the needs of every image bearer of God, and that's every human being that we can think of. That is a supernatural thing, and we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to do it. Here's the next result. Number two, being filled with the Spirit results in tears and trials. 
Well, that one's not so much fun, huh? Being filled with the Spirit results in tears and trials. Paul says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now listen, I am not saying that a mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit is sadness and difficulty. That's not the mark of being Spirit-filled. The mark of being Spirit-filled is joy. But we have to recognize that trials are a thing. Trials are a thing. Difficulties, afflictions, they're going to happen. And being Spirit-filled, as Paul was, enables us to navigate those things without hindering the call that has been placed on our lives. When the trial comes, it doesn't become an impassable roadblock. And we need to be Spirit-filled. Do you believe me that trials are certain? Don't believe me. Let's look at the Scriptures, all right? 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Trials are normal. If you read on in our passage from today, we see that Spirit-filled Paul wept with tears over the people in his charge. He says in verse 31 that he did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. When we are Spirit-filled, when we are in Spirit-filled, you're going to hear me say that a lot today, Spirit-filled. When we are in Spirit-filled service to others, we are going to do what Romans 12, 15 says. We are going to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are going to weep with those who weep. That's part of being in Spirit-filled service to others. Okay, back to these trials. Are they really a thing? James 1, verse 2 and 3 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How? How is it possible to count it all joy? Count it a joy when we hit trials and, and afflictions and problems and hardships? How does that happen? Well, Paul's going to give us the answer to that, but I'm going to make you wait for it because it comes a little later. Let's look at another result. Let's look at another result of being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit results in courage. In courage. Paul said, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying. We're going to stop right there. Paul says he's not shrinking back. This is verse 20. That's what I just read to you is verse 20. And it goes hand in hand with the last verse in our passage, which is verse 27, where Paul says, let me make sure I'm quoting it right. He says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He did not shrink back from it. Let me tell you, Christian brothers and sisters, there are going to be times when you will be tempted to shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Because there are things that are part of the whole counsel of God that are not always easy to speak about 
in every context and in every community and in every situation. There are things in the whole counsel of God that are unpopular. That's probably not a surprise to you. There are things in the whole counsel of God that are contentious, depending on who hears them and who you're engaged with. But praise be to the Lord that popularity is not the litmus test for whether something is the whole counsel of God or not. Otherwise, the whole counsel of God would be constantly changing based on the whims of the popularity contest of this world. The whole counsel of God can be found in the truth of Scripture, and it will not always be received well. And it's something that we need to not shrink back from declaring. Being filled with the Spirit gives us courage to do that. Now, I want to clarify something. Our first result this morning in being filled with the Spirit was to serve others in humility. Declaring the whole counsel of God does not mean you're excused from doing so in humility. Okay? Think about this. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. The times that I can think of in my life when I have declared things without first humbly listening, or I've declared things in my own arrogance, even when they're scriptural, but I'm not caring for others in humility, those are, those are times that embarrass me now. That I was speaking for myself rather than speaking for the Lord because I wasn't serving the needs of others. But there is a kind of confident humility. We can declare things confidently and still do so in humility. Think of it rather than speaking for myself. Speak of, think of it as being a herald of a king or the ambassador of a country where you are bringing a message that is not your own. You're declaring the good news of someone who is far above you in authority. It gives you confidence and allows you to remain in a place of humility because you are not that person in authority. You're just bringing the news. So confident humility is a thing. And Paul talks about doing this, declaring the whole counsel of God. He talks about declaring it and teaching it. Thinking of, think of that as being declaring it in public and teaching it in private. Teaching is more of an explaining kind of thing. We're doing that right now, and it's public, of, of course. But we can think of teaching as being the sit-down conversations one-on-one with another Christian brother or sister, or, or maybe not, maybe they're not a Christian, an unbeliever, where we sit down and we teach the things of the Lord. Sometimes it's going to be public, sometimes it's going to be private. But who do we teach to? Paul says, well, let me, let me cover this first. No matter how we're doing it, whether it's public or private, it represents this, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That does not mean someone who is Jewish and someone who is from Greece. That means to those who are Jewish and everyone who is not Jewish. It includes everyone. That's who we declare this to. Everyone. In fact, I stopped, if you remember, I stopped at the word testifying when I was reading that passage, but it goes on and it says this, testifying both to Jews and Greeks, that's everybody, of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That means, think about this, what that means for the populations around you, or even if they're not around you, the populations you can think of. Who do we declare this truth to? We declare it to the imprisoned and the free. We declare it to the heterosexuals and the homosexuals. We declare it to the drug users and the teetotalers. We declare it to the protesters and the non-protesters. We declare it to the opinionated and those who are very quiet. We declare it to everyone of every skin color from every nation. We declare it to believers and unbelievers. And what is it that we declare? What is it that we're testifying of? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ without exception for any reason. That, let's go on to the next, let's go on to our next result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is where you're going to get the answer in Paul's life of how we can count it all joy when we experience various trials. Here is number four, result of being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit results in a healthy devaluation of my own life. Healthy devaluation of my own life. Paul says this, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Value is an important thing. All right? And it's really important that we deal with this subject and keep in mind the word healthy because there's unhealthy devaluation as well. What does it mean to be in a healthy place of devaluing our own life? All right? It's important to remember this. Every human being bears the image of God and is equally valuable, equally important in the eyes of God. That's true. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he goes on to say that this man that he created, humankind that he created, he put in, uh, he gave them rulership over all of the things on this planet. So right there, God placed humans as more valuable than anything on this earth. He put us in a position to rule over the things of this earth. That's a very significant value, and I'm not telling you to reject that value. It's just that a healthy devaluation of our own life recognizes that even though our value as humans is very, very high in the eyes of the Lord, it does not even come close, does not even begin to approach His value and His goodness, and His worth. Paul, in fact, is so convinced of that that he says that his life is not even as important as the assignment he's been given by this God who is all-valuable and all-amazing and all-powerful. His value is so much lower that even God's assignment to him is more important than his own life. We can prove that by looking at the things that Paul said. Consider this. This is, this is what Paul said in the coming verses. He says, not knowing what will happen to me there. He's referring to when he leaves this meeting and he goes off to Jerusalem. Not knowing 
what will happen to me there. He has no idea what the details are going to be of his life as he travels toward Jerusalem. But it doesn't affect his decision. He is set on going even though he doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't need to know what's going to happen because the call of God on his life is more important than the details as to how it will play out. Then he says this, except, I don't know what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul just said, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but whatever it is, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. I don't know what it is, but I know it's going to be bad. And it does not affect his decision-making in going because he values the Lord and the call on his life more than his own life. Then he says it just about as plainly as you can. He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. If this sounds familiar to you, Paul said practically the same thing in Philippians 3.8. He said, indeed, I account everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In Philippians 3 and here in Acts 20, Paul is saying, Jesus is so worth it. He's so worth it that everything else that I experience, everything I would have to give up, everything that I would suffer, doesn't matter. It's garbage. It's worse than garbage. It's not worth considering only Jesus. And then he says, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. We start getting these hints that he doesn't know what's going to happen, but he has kind of like a a feeling. Whatever it's going to be, he's raised it to the level in his mind that it's going to be so bad that he's probably not going to see them again, which means he's probably thinking that this is going to lead to his death. And, you know, death in that time, in Paul's situation, would not have been pleasant. And he knows that. But it doesn't affect his decision to move forward because he has a healthy devaluation of his own life. He knows that he's made in the image of God, but that the pursuit of that calling, the pursuit of Jesus, and the hope that he has in him is so far beyond anything that he has here. John Piper says it like this. He says, to Paul, faithfulness was greater than life. To Paul, faithfulness to this call, faithfulness to the Lord Jesus was greater than life. Paul was able to say what we see Paul in this moment saying is basically what the psalmist said in Psalm 63, verses 2 and 3. The psalmist says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, and because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Paul could have said, Because your steadfast love is better than life, I'm going to get on this ship and go to Jerusalem knowing that whatever's there is bad and it's going to be bad for me and it's going to hurt and I may never see you again. But your steadfast love is better than my life. So, four results 
of being filled with the Spirit, and as I said before, I'm sure there are many, many more, but serving with all humility, not being hindered by trials, having courage, moving forward with courage, and having a healthy devaluation of ourselves in light of who the Lord is. In closing, I want to get to one final point, and really, it's it's kind of the most important point of the morning, even though it's not one of the results of being filled with the Spirit. If we can look at these results of being filled with the Spirit, that's great and that's wonderful, but we don't get the result unless we're filled with the Spirit. So how are we filled with the Spirit? So the last point is just simply this. It's the title of today's message, Be Filled with the Spirit. How did He do the things that He did, Paul that is? How can we do those same things and walk that same walk? The answer is be filled with the same Spirit. Now listen, this is an important distinction. Every born-again believer in this room, every born-again believer in this county, in this state, in this country, in this world, every born-again believer there is or ever has been has the Holy Spirit of Christ. We are given that when we are saved. We have God's Holy Spirit, which is a miraculous, incredible thing. That's not what I'm talking about, though. I'm not talking about that moment. What I'm talking about is the use of that phrase, be filled with the Spirit, as it's used in Scripture to mean an ongoing, lifelong, recurring process. Be filled with the Spirit. We're given the Holy Spirit of God at salvation, but we need to continue to be filled with the Spirit. So everything I say from this point on is not in relation to salvation. It's in relation to sanctification, really, our walk with the Lord for those of us who have been born again by His grace. And I want to remind you again, we said it earlier, but I want to point you back to Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 18 through 21 says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is a strange command that the Lord gives us in His Scripture to be filled with the Spirit. It's a strange command because He says it to us. He says it to Tim. He, he says it to David. He says it to all of us. He says, be filled with the Spirit, but it's the Lord who does the filling. We don't fill ourselves with the Spirit. He tells us to do this, but it's the Lord who fills us. So how do we how do we respond to that call? If we want to answer that call, that command obediently, how do we do that? Well, the answer is, on one hand, super, super simple. But on the other hand, it's something that you're going to chew on and deal with every moment of your life from here until you meet Jesus. And the answer is this that being filled with the Spirit comes through faith. Um, projection, guys, can you put the verse Romans 15, 13 
up there. We're going to get to that in a moment, but I want it to be up there for you to see as we talk about this. Being filled with the Spirit comes through faith. It means exercising that faith, believing what the Lord has said to us, trusting in what we see in His Word, feeding on His Word, feeding in the green pastures that He's led us to. It means turning to Him. It means returning to Him in repentance when we've screwed up. It means resisting temptation. It means drawing near to God. All of those things are an exercise of the faith that He's given to us as a gift. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now, think about that passage. Just kind of rearrange it a little bit. If we believe, if we exercise this faith and we trust in the Lord, He's going to fill us. Being, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So we believe we're filled. What are we filled with? We're filled with joy and peace. How does that joy and peace come? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And what's the ultimate result? We abound in hope. And that right there, I think, is what drove Paul to be able to say the things that he said and do the things that he intended to do as he moved forward in this moment in Miletus and he was moving forward to Jerusalem. He abounded in hope. I have one last thing I want to say to you, but I, I want to refer to, I, I stole Rebecca's, Rebecca Yerke's notes this morning when she came up to talk about Eutychus because she said something that captures this so, so well. And again, Rebecca and I didn't plan this out. So thankful to the Lord when He does things like this. Rebecca said, whatever hardships, difficult circumstances, illnesses, or persecutions befall us, they cannot stand against the glory of God and the promise of an eternity spent with our Savior. That's biblical hope. Biblical hope is not hope like you hope for something at Christmas. Like you have something on your Christmas list and you really hope it's under the tree, but you don't really know. Biblical hope is an assurance of what is coming, that what has been promised is true, and it's just a matter of time of waiting on the Lord for Him to work it out according to His will. And those things that befall us cannot stand against the glory of God and the promise of an eternity with Him. It cannot stand against that hope. So one final thought, and I'm going to read it because I want to say it exactly right. Listen to this. As Paul spoke with the Ephesian elders in Miletus, he abounded in a hope that was beyond this planet outside of time, completely different from what we experience here. It's the kind of hope that sees past the unknown and the certainty of trial and longs only to hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear that? 
Don't you long for the day when you stand in the presence of the Lord and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I know that I long for that day. I can't wait to hear those words. And if we have that hope that we will stand in the presence of the Lord and we engage in this ongoing process of being filled with the Spirit by moving in the things that the Lord has given us and told us to do, engaging with His life-giving Word, then we will abound in that same hope that Paul had. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful, Lord, for the hope that You purchased for us in Your Son, Jesus. Lord, we are thankful, and we know that even now as You give us a glimpse of what you have done for us, it is only the tiniest, tiniest bit of your goodness, of your faithfulness to your word, of who you are, of the full character of God. Father, we know that we see you and you have revealed yourself in your word, but Lord, we abound with hope. Help us to abound with hope for the day that we will look at you face to face and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to walk in the Spirit daily and do the things that you have called us to do in humility and courage, Father. We ask that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. We're going to, Brian's going to come up. We've got a few announcements before you go.